Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on September 15th, 2023. David Tuschler is the Chief Horticulturalist for Devil Mountain Wholesale Nursery. He established the nursery's propagation program and currently directs the propagation and inventory team's for the company's 16 locations across California. David has worked in the nursery industry for three decades, including many years at Valley Crest Tree Company. While there, he served as plant health care manager for the specimen tree division, account manager in the estate gardens division, and most notably, chief arborist for the apple contract grow. Responsible for growing over 7,000 trees, half from seed, for installation at the Apple Campus in Cupertino, California. David is a certified arborist and a member of the Western Chapter of the ISA and the IPPS. He is a third-generation Californian and has a Bachelor of Science in Ornamental Horticulture from California State University, Fresno. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, David. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's great. And thanks for accommodating us, as Eva said. David, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you found your way to horticulture and arboriculture and nursery production? Sure. I grew up on a small farm, a wine grape vineyard in Northern California, up in Sonoma County. It's uh, been in my family since the 1870s. So was was intimately in touch with the land and with agriculture all my life. I think I was told at three is when I planted my first handful of seeds. And I've been hooked ever since. I uh, built my first greenhouse when I was 14 and started raising Symbidium orchids as a hobby. 
I took a lot of ag classes in high school, was part of the Future Farmers of America. I went on to Fresno State University and studied ornamental horticulture. And um, it's been my passion. I'm very fortunate. I knew what I wanted to do all of my life. And I've continued to pursue that all my career, my adult career. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you were made for uh, California horticulture. They're lucky to have you. Well, thank you. I, I consider myself very fortunate to have been able to pursue my passion. So looking through your resume or some of your background, David, it sounds like you had a hand in uh, tree care industry at the outset and then kind of moved more towards the nursery end of things. Do I have that right? Well, I started out in the nursery industry. And then there was an opportunity to go to the, uh, well, working with Valley Crest Tree Company in the day. So we only produced trees and only grew trees. Working on that side of the industry, I was asked to become the maintenance manager for our specimen tree division, which is we would go and relocate fully full-size trees or install full-size trees. And in that process, I had the opportunity to become a certified arborist and then got very connected with the arboricultural community and leaders in the arboricultural community. So trees sort of became my specialty, growing and managing trees, pruning trees, uh, structuring trees, doing great tree work. I get teased about this, but uh, I always said I wanted to work for Williams-Sonoma, not Walmart. So I want to produce the highest, I want to produce the highest quality trees at a, at a, at a value, but, uh, but best of the best. And the aside to that is Williams-Sonoma is very heavily involved in reforestation. So I think that's, you know, a, a, good, a good thing. Right. One of the things that I saw on your bio is the fact that you have worked with seed and you do a lot of planting. Tell us a little bit about the actual process that you go through from the seed to the young tree. Sure. Um... What's really interesting is I've always loved propagation and making more trees. And when I went to work for uh, Valley Crest Tree Company many, many years ago, what I learned quickly is that they didn't do any propagation. All of the small stock was purchased in from a nursery that specialized in small trees. So I, again, I just, you know, I'm growing things on from somebody else's seedlings. And then when we landed the contract to grow the trees for uh, Apple Computers Campus in Cupertino, uh, now it's called Apple Park, I believe, we were given seeds and we said, okay, you're going to grow these trees for our contract. And I went, wow. And they also told us how we were going to grow trees, how we were going to produce them. So of course, I was incredibly excited about being able to grow trees from seed. And again, I call it the beginning of my second career, which it's, it's always been a nurseryman, but now I focus on propagation and growing things from both cuttings and from seed because they had come to us specifying a very particular root growing container or style of production. Again, you know, I've been in the nursery industry for a few years and I said, okay, more snake oil. Somebody's going to try and have us grow their plants in these special pots and you know, I, I didn't think much of it until we really got into it. And I realized I had one of those aha moments where I went, wow, this is actually a way better way to grow trees, better quality, much faster. And when my immediate supervisor at that time walked into the greenhouses or, or 
protective houses. They weren't greenhouses. They were shade houses mm-hmm. uh, where we were growing the trees for the Cupertino campus. And he said, hey, you guys are pretty good at this. And I said, well, thank you. And his next comment was, why aren't we doing our own? And I said, I've been asking you that for 20 years. <laughs> I said, we, we, we really need to have control of our destiny. And by producing our own trees in-house, we were able to take the peaks and valleys out of production. So we did our own. We had control of timing. And it really sort of set a gentle pace in production. And the first year out, I remember him saying, don't boil the ocean. You know, go to the inventory manager, find out which trees you can easily produce from seed in-house. So I went with Quercus because, you know, large acorns, they're very tactile. Not a seed you're going to uh, lose easily. And um, I'd had some experience in high school growing oak trees from acorns. So I knew I had a little history there. And then pines, which also have fairly large uh, propagules or large seeds. Mm -hmm. And it was easy to do. And we set out to do about 25,000 trees that first year. And by the end of year one, I think we had done close to 50,000 trees because we had such great success with the oaks and pines. It's like, okay, well, let's do podocarpus. How about these? It, It very quickly evolved. And I think it was about two years into the project, he asked, so how much are we producing in-house now? And at that point, it was around 65, 70% of all of our tree production had been moved in-house. And he said, how do we close the gap? And I said, I need a greenhouse because the rest of it has to be produced from cuttings. And he looked at the operations manager and said, can you build David a greenhouse, please? And <laughs> we went from, I laugh, we went from zero to 95% in-house production in about four years. That's passion. That's passion. Yeah. Oh, I. You're going to you're going to make me cry now because you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've grown at the university, so I know I had to grow for a project, and and you know I thought a thousand was a lot for for the project I was working on. It was a grant, but the fact of the matter is that when you have a passion for something, you can. It's almost like you you can deliver beyond expectations. Right. I have to bridle myself because I will. You know, well, if I can do a thousand, why not five thousand? And we don't, you know, we're, we don't want to make more than what we can sell comfortably. We of course want to have something available for our clientele on the shelf, but we don't want to produce so much that we end up throwing things away. And then once, of course, we got the, the Ventura County or Southern California nursery at about 95%, he said, okay, now go to the Northern California nursery and do the same thing. So that took a year to get them from purchasing liners to producing everything in-house because we'd already figured out how to do it in Southern California. So it was just, okay, take the model and move it north. How did that affect your your suppliers that were supplying you? What happened with that? You know, what was really interesting is I thought for sure, the, the, the key supplier, I thought for sure would notice. And I think it was two or three years into the process where we hadn't been purchasing anything from her. And she called up and she says, hey, you haven't been buying any of our oak trees for the last couple of years. And my comment was, I thought you'd figure it out at some point. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. so and, and we had actually approached that vendor and said, you know, we would like to continue having you produce our trees for us. But we found a much better, faster way to grow them. And again, better for our clients. 
So faster was great for the nursery because we could turn the ground faster. Better for our clients because these trees had far better root systems and it would establish quicker in the landscape. And so we said, hey, we'd like to do this. And she said, no, I'm not going to change my production process. So she was given the yeah. opportunity. And uh, she had such a, you know, a, such a great business that so much business than we were not, we were not a huge customer, probably 15% of our business. How was it for you, uh, Dave, in terms of sourcing for the oaks and the pines and coming up with that seed? Was that a bit of a scramble or? It's always a scramble. And, you know, it's funny, you started making me uh, breathe hard, Hal. <laughs> because sorry, it's no, 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 it's that season. And this yeah. is the time of year when oh. I... I go from being Dave the propagation guy, Dave the tree geek guy, to Dave the squirrel mm. because um, I have very selected or very specific mother trees that I like to use for our production. There has been a little bit of slowing in the economy here. So we've been in talks for the last month and a half, two months, talking about what our numbers are going to be for next year. And again, because of my enthusiasm for propagation the last few years, we're pretty well set for the the upcoming season. So we're kind of, we're not taking a pass, but there's only two line items I'm going to actually go out as far as acorns go this year. We're going to do a small crop of all of the pines. And for that, I have a local seed house in the Santa Barbara area that has always been my supplier for propagules. So does that answer the question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, great. I, great. I was going to ask you about, because um, we had talked with someone earlier about seed. And sure. I think actually his his episode is going to be up on next week. Is it hard to find people who know exactly how to collect? Next to impossible. I, hard doesn't even doesn't even describe it, uh, especially with acorns. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, because they don't go dormant. I mean, the eastern the eastern U.S. oaks are easier to store because they have a longer winter period. But California oaks are specifically designed. Our local valley oak is dropping its acorns right now. Today's the day. 9.15 is always the day that we that I have marked on my calendar. It's time to start collecting Quercus lobata acorns. And it was always the beginning of the propagation year. So we used oaks as the stake in the ground for our for our once a year. We, In other words, that's where the calendar started, the propagation calendar. And then other species would follow along. And I have a calendar that tracks them. And then also where we're going to collect. For example, Quercus tomentella acorns all come from Arroyo Grande High School in Arroyo Grande, California. <laughs> and Quercus anglomania acorns all come from the Viejas uh, Indian Reservation in eastern San Diego County. So consistency is important in our business so if you were let's say how you wanted a, a mesa oak a quercus anglomoniae right and you had you bought it and you planted it in your garden and you had wonderful success or your client's yard you had wonderful success you'd want to come back to devil mountain nursery and get the same thing again if you had another client right so us producing a a consistent crop from the same mother trees that are going to perform consistently from for you are this very important thing. I have to share this. I have to share collecting red oak here. Okay. We're, doing, we're collecting red oak. And this is when I, I didn't know that you shouldn't let them fall to the ground. Although there's other ones that you have to let fall to the ground. <laughs> we got them. They fell to the ground. And I, 
had people pick them up and we put them into brown bags and we're going to go to store them. And I came into my office <laughs> to an actual horror movie because the worms that got into the egg corn, they worked yep. their way out of the bags. And I had thousands of worms yep. <laughs> from my office floor. And then I said, oh, okay. And I, I've actually had a book from Michael Durr, who I've talked to every now and then. And uh, it said in there, whatever you do, make sure you have nets under the trees to make sure you catch them. Because when they touch the ground, the worm Mm -hmm. gets into it. But all the other ones, like chestnut oak, they have to fall to the ground for their radical to come out. Right. So there's so many different methods that you have to know when you're propagating, whether it's a pawpaw or an oak or a pine. And the we, more you propagate, the more you learn. And they're just sometimes just a little minutia that can make the difference of all the seeds taking to none of them propagate. Right. So with oaks, uh, especially California native oaks, they're designed to fall on the ground. And the minute we get a rainstorm, they start growing. The radical mm-hmm. will come out immediately. As soon right. as we get any sort of moisture... Because they're moisture in a semi-desert environment, which is what California is, they're designed to take advantage of a long, hopefully wet winter, but they don't require any sort of storage. So I want to talk quickly about your your caterpillars or your 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 bugs, your worms and your acorns, because I've actually had acorn grubs eat their way out of the acorns and then eat their way through Ziploc bags. Yeah. That, that... I find them in the refrigerator. I'm like, you were in plastic bags. How did you? And then I find holes in the Ziploc bags. And this is in refrigeration. This is actually inside of a dark, cold refrigerator. You described them. I, I call them like a worm, but they were they were actually a grub. It looks like a little yeah. grub. Uh-huh. It, yeah. And I, I have pictures of them. And people like, show that on the screen. Everybody goes, for propagation class. I'm like, ah! <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> so the interesting thing you brought up was about propagation and different plants have different types of dormancy. In mm-hmm. other words, they sleep a certain way and it needs a certain process to wake them up. I will describe quickly um, California redbud, which is Circus occidentalis. Mm-hmm. This, it's a bean. It's, in a, it's a legume. Yeah. And right. the seed case is papery. And the seeds are ready right now, and we're right in the middle of fire season here in California. So if you think about it, one of the processes for to get a, a red bud to germinate is the seed has to heat up, and they're very waxy. You have to melt the oils and waxes in the seed coat first. So, so step one is boiling water. So we take the seeds and we pour boiling, like literally boiling water, into a bowl over the seeds. And then you let them rest overnight in that bowl. That heat breaks the waxy coating, which allows the seeds to imbibe. So the seeds will literally double in size overnight. But that's not that's step one. Step two is they'd fall on the ground after fire season, and they'd fall in the cracks and in the ash and whatever's on the ground after a fire burn through. And they would sit there through the cold, wet winter. So then you have to have 60 to 90 days of stratification. So then you put them in bags of damp soil, and throw them in the back of the refrigerator for three months. And then we will plant them out in the spring. And what's interesting is the germination rate is phenomenal. But if you don't go through those two steps, nothing will come up. It might take years before that waxy seed breaks down far enough for that seed to germinate. 
You know, in, in one of the seeds here, a uh, fire species, Pinus frigida, uh-huh. uh, I was doing some experiments on it because somebody had given me some biochar to experiment with. And boy, never fails. Three days, the seeds are up on biochar. Mm. But the thing is, they don't, it doesn't have a lot of nutrients in it. So don't leave them in the biochar for more than two or three weeks because the nutrients aren't there. Then you transplant yeah. it into your, or you make a mix with, and so I've started learning how to make a mix with the biochar and the, and the other elements that I would make the mix out of. But so that's the kind of thing, that, like three days, what? Oh yeah, yeah, it makes sense because you the ground doesn't want to be bare after a fire. Things are going to start no. happening right away. And I don't know if it's the, I would say it's not necessarily the ground that wants to be bare, but it's the tree that wants to take advantage of that bare ground because yes. giant open space. And this is what I teach my pruning crews. It's like, you guys have to understand that light is food. That handful of exactly. granules that we throw on the ground is not food to a tree. It's right. accelerant, makes them grow faster, but light is food. So if you've got this vast open space that has no competition, a seed's going to say, okay, I got to get going fast because I've got to take advantage of this giant open space and all this light, all this food that's going to be available before everybody else catches up with me. And then I start starving because I'm being shaded out. And we were, were talking with a couple of guests about the tiny forest and how they've learned through the Miyawaki method that if you plant all these like hundreds of trees all at once and they're all pretty much the same size or close to the same size, upper story, lower story, all at once, they start to outcompete each other. And yep. they create this succession that they would normally see, but you're speeding it up by years. And right. in 20 years, you have a 100-year forest, which is, it really makes sense. And the way you're talking about having that germination process by having the sun, it, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah, they're taking advantage of all the free food, which we call sunlight. And when you're talking to your pruning crews, uh, David, are you is that for the work being done in the field, training the trees that eventually get sold? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, most, again, many through many conversations in my career, I've learned that if we start when they're small, and I've always worked on the small side of, of the nursery, the small trees, the seedlings, the small number five trees, the number 15 trees. That's where I tend to focus my energy because just like with children, if we, if we set them up right at an early age and do all the training that's needed, later on in life, they're quite easy to maintain. They require little or no input, but putting a lot of input on the small side is, is critical. So I work with uh, all the pruning crews at our different locations. But lesson number one is always, okay, everybody put your pruners down. And I ask the question, what is food for plants? What is food for trees? And everybody wants to say that handful of fertilizer. And I said, nope, you're absolutely wrong. It's great. It helps. We call it plant food or tree food. But uh, food for plants is light. So every leaf we cut off in the process of structuring a tree is going to cause the tree to suffer. So anytime we remove green tissue, we're hurting the plant. Now, humans have, they want, we want our trees in the built environment. So we have lines or we have levels we have to grow these trees too, so we can walk underneath them. So they're structurally sound, so they don't drop branches on people. So having that in mind, yes, we need to go prune these trees, 
and this is our target? And how can we prune them as little as possible to meet what our ultimate goal is, which is a safe environment for us as humans who are targets underneath trees, but as vigorous and green and thick and lush a canopy as, as we can have. And for the for the the customer side of it too, I often say, when was the last time you had a client come in and say, I want that super thin, you know, tree that that doesn't have any branches on it? No, they want the big, thick, lush green tree that looks like it's got great vitality. And uh, I said, remember that. So don't prune it to the point where a customer is going to say, I don't want that. It's been over pruned. So that's always been my philosophy. I noticed that you have a background in plant health care. And I'm wondering when you have had a successful germination of several thousand, let's say, oak or pine. Uh, I'm assuming a fair amount of monitoring goes on. And do you have issues at different times with, I'm assuming, more like fungus-based outbreaks of, of disease? Absolutely. It's, yeah. yeah, the plant health care side is, is another hat that I wear. I was actually, I was technical services manager at uh, Valley Crest. So that meant tree printing. I and spraying when I first started, it later became propagation because, well, you heard that story already. Right. So, absolutely. And calendaring those things. And again, using, oh, but integrated pest management or right. IPM, yep. using IPM programs to prevent issues versus allowing them to happen and calendaring all those. We have a Devil Mountain has an incredible spray calendar. It's actually, you can hang it on the wall. And we give one to each of the technicians that does our spraying and maintenance in the nursery. And they can look at that and, okay, it's it's uh, September 15th. This is what we should be looking for. Doesn't mean you have to go spray everything. But mm-hmm. you need to start looking for it because this is when it shows up. And that's been built over years. It started out as a, in Excel or Outlook. And I would just set reminders you know, for the next year because I didn't want to forget how bad the problem was this year. So I would put a reminder in two weeks earlier, three weeks before, you know, the the issue this year. So next year, I could either do the preventative work or start scouting earlier. Yeah. And I would assume some of that scouting has kind of been turned on its head with some of the weather extremes coming through with periods of drought, followed perhaps by the spring deluges that you had. (laughs) You know, um, you never know what Mother Nature is going to bring. And there's always something new also. I can remember when I first started in the industry that eucalyptus uh, nurserymen would come from Australia and look at the eucalyptus trees in California and just be mind blown by how big they were, how healthy they were, and just their overall vigor and beauty. Because at that time, we didn't have any of the pests and diseases that affect Australian eucalyptus in uh, California. Yeah. So, um, but unfortunately, over you know the last 25, 30 years of my career, I've seen a lot of introduced, accidentally introduced or otherwise, in California. You know, uh, um, tortoiseshell beetle, longhorn beetle, lerp psyllids, all these things that have come in and have started affecting uh, our eucalyptus trees. And they're present. They're obviously present in the environment in Australia. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, uh, I hate to use that stupid cliche, mind-boggling, but uh, it's mind-boggling to think that as we double down, and we can talk in a minute about California's commitment to expanding its plant palette, but it does mean the insect palette gets expanded as well. Unfortunately, we try not to. Do you use biologicals at all? Absolutely, whenever possible. Whenever we try to, uh, horticultural oils are my go-to. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of great environmentally soft chemistry that we can use that yeah. meets our need. Uh, again, we have to have a product that is customer, you know, our client is, it, it needs to, it meets a certain threshold, you know, uh, economic threshold. They're not going to buy something that's covered with insects or is all chewed up. So we have to meet at least that line. Mm-hmm. I would like to say that a few on a few. So a few aphids on a few roses, not the end of the world. Right. But if right. they're enrobed in aphids, the customer's not going to buy them. So again, it's it's a monitoring process. Look around, see what we have. What's the gentlest or least lab- laborious thing we can do to deal with that issue? We have some growers here that are using all biologicals in their production of herbs that go to the, the large supermarkets, which you can understand because, you know, you don't want to have... Yeah. Uh, herbs sprayed with pesticides, but they have said to the to the people who are receiving it, you're going to see a few little insects on there, but you're not going to see a lot. And that's which, right. that's the threshold that we like to bring the plants to with that right. that little bit of insect. And and I think that that's important. And as growers, as we move forward with how we do things, I'm I'm sure that your company is concerned about what they use in the industry and also from the environmental standpoint, what you're putting on. Yeah, and not to mention that most of that stuff is incredibly expensive. Yes, So it's not great for for the bottom line. That's exactly right. And, you know, we don't, why would we want to expose our employees unnecessarily to toxic chemicals if there's nothing to spray? Yes. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons not to. Right. So again, I, th- I think our approach is, is, is healthy. We have to produce a product that our customer is going to like, but as environmentally safe as we can do that. That makes perfect sense. I like your various observations, and I wonder if I could just see if you have any general observations with the pruning discussion that often takes place of the pruning cut up in the crown and how that translates into root growth down below. Sure. So on the website, I see your product, and uh, I don't even know as a East Coast what the the big wooden containers are called. What are those called? What do you? The tree boxes. Tree boxes. Oh, I could have sure. almost guessed or, that. Or, or, or crates. They're crates. We call yes. them yeah, crates I, here too. Right. We call them tree boxes. But so, what have you been able to observe in terms of uh, the root system's response to a pruning program? Well. Any sort of pruning of roots or pruning of canopy? A pruning of canopy. Uh, without question, any removal of, of healthy tissue, you know, photosynthetic surfaces up in the canopy of the tree is definitely going to slow down root production. Period. Okay. That's a given. If you remove photosynthetic surfaces, you're going to slow the collection of carbohydrates, which is going to overall cause everything to grow slower. Okay, that's great. We have a, a guest coming up that's going to be talking about coppicing. And we've also had a couple shows on pollarding. But that's sure. a question I've always forgotten to kind of circle back to is what happens to that root system? Sure. And again, 
that is a those are practices that I'm not against. I'm actually growing yeah. a large contract or custom grow for a client in the Wilshire area in downtown LA. And we are actually making an LA of blarded trees for this private gated community. And they said, we want to change our entrance and we'd like to start growing the trees a couple of years before we actually do construction. And I said, it's absolutely a practice that I, I get it. We do it for a reason. We do it a certain time of the year and it's not a problem. I think that that's great that people are looking ahead and thinking ahead so that they're not scurrying around and, and doing things that will be more detrimental to the tree later on. Uh, I think that if the nursery has them a little bit longer or the nursery is managing them to the point where they need less work when they're put in, it creates a better visual. At least I yeah. think it does. Right. If we add in better roots, so producing trees that are on a better root system that haven't been circling or girdling around in a tiny container. And then if we know how the end user is going to use the trees and we can produce a tree to that to fit their project or their site, to us, that's a, a huge win for the client and for us as the producer. Currently, there's a rather large project being grown for Treasure Island, which is out in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. Windy, windy, windy. And when the weather's, it's always windy, period. So they wanted us to produce some eucalyptus for them for a park. And what we've done is we've literally pruned these trees into, you know, five-foot box. They're in five-foot boxes, what we would call a 16-inch box. We've pruned them into a giant bonsai. And what we've done is we've hardened them off. We've created a very heavy trunk with a smaller canopy that's going to be resilient at installation, where other trees they've planted that have been grown in the normal nursery system have failed almost immediately. They plant them and they fall over. So again, they came to us and I said, well, we absolutely can grow those trees to fit that need. Have you ever had eucalyptus on a pollarding program or do you have a sense of how they would handle pollarding? You know, there's a beautiful, uh, sub. it's actually one of the first subdivisions ever built in the state of California. It went into San Francisco around 1912. The community is called St. Francis Wood. And it was very much the heyday of Hollywood and and these fancy, amazing architects. The the architectural work in St. Francis Wood is, it's just stunning. And they actually have, a, what do you call a coffee table book of every of every house in the development, who the architect was. But uh, the fun story is the trees are all eucalyptus. And the folks on the East Coast that designed the landscape, the same uh, outfit that did uh, the Olmstead Group, the same people who did oh, Central yeah. Park, yeah. did the landscape design for this project. But the landscaper couldn't get those oak trees in California. <laughs> so it was right after the, the World's Fair. Right. And... There in San Francisco, the Australian display was throwing all of their eucalyptus trees away. So he went down and grabbed them all, he or they went down and grabbed them all. And that's what they landscaped St. Francis Wood with, are all these beautiful eucalyptus trees that were pollarded annually. Okay. So they were topped and grown into these beautiful, you know, these are massive trees in yeah. their native state that have been kept essentially dwarf by this constant pruning. And then I would say 70s, 80s, somebody came in and said, you can't top trees. Topping trees is a crime. Cutting trees back is a crime. So the city literally forced them to stop 
maintaining their trees. Oh, dear. Stop pruning them in this, this pollarded fashion because they are street trees. And what has happened is then they overgrew. And because they had been pruned so hard for so many years, their branch connections weren't solid. Weak. So these yeah. trees literally, and this is not a uh, low-income neighborhood, and these trees were falling on very expensive cars and very expensive homes. So they're literally now in the process of removing them all mm. and replanting it. The beautiful thing is they went back with eucalyptus. Uh, we're working with Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, uh, uh, California University here. And their professor of environmental horticulture gathered the seeds and provided us with the seeds. And then we grew them on in our, in our uh, air root pruning pots. And we are in turn selling the trees back to St. Francis Wood to not only replace with the same varieties, but seeds from the trees that were part of the original plant. Wow, that's what a, a great, great story. story. Yeah. That's a great story. Love that. Yeah, Love it's that. super exciting. And it's a fun project. The only thing I run up against is, you know, eucalyptus are very fast growing trees, especially in a nursery environment. And it's getting the contractors and the installers on the other side to understand that, that when they're ready, they're ready. And I don't care if you haven't, don't have the holes dug yet or the irrigation installed, you need to take these trees, they need to go in the ground. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, tell us a little bit about the the range of variation and are you planning for, do you do assisted migration like we do here on the East Coast where we take plants from the southern part or further south from us and we move them north because the temperatures are getting hotter? Absolutely. And the person who kind of opened my eyes to that was the arborist from the, uh, the Cupertino project or the Apple Park. And he specifically put in a great deal of uh, mesa oaks, Quercusangulmanii, which is definitely a Southern California native tree. You know, think Pasadena, Arcadia, and then down into San Francisco, down into San Diego and Northern Mexico. It's a beautiful tree. It's a beautiful tree. a great tree. tree. Yeah. And they are growing them as street trees here in the Bay Area now. And they are perfect trees for a warming environment. So another obvious thing for me was once I learned that, I said, okay, if I'm collecting coast live oak acorns, collect them as far south as you can and then start planting them further north. So you have your special trees down south that you're going to be using for northern climb. Yep. That's really very smart. Yeah, it just it kind of made sense. They still work in Southern California, but they might even work better here in the Bay Area. Or, or, or sometimes, like we have lost, we have lost a lot of species to um, temperature rise, and a, a lot of our conifers are disappearing. And in fact, in like the last five years, we've lost uh, quite a bit of them, like the Colorado spruce, and um, now the uh, Norway spruce, which has always been a staple here for the last hundred years is actually, you know, needle cast disease is affecting it. And, and we're, you know, we're concerned that evergreens are just not, not going to be here. So bringing up those plants from the South has really made a difference to fill in those holes that are so big with, with those trees missing. Yeah. And there, I know for a fact that there are conifers in Florida and, you know, are right. you going to take them all the way up to Pennsylvania? Probably not. No. But there's going to be some species in between those two locations that you can move north and over time are going to be okay a little further north. Yeah, we have now are using um, the northern line was Delaware, southern Delaware for the taxodium, the bald cypress. Well, we use the bald cypress in the city of Philadelphia right on the street as a street tree. Right. 
And we also use the metasequoia, which is the dawn redwood from uh, China. And it works extremely well, especially right. in riparian areas where you have flooding, where you need a real big sponge to, to absorb it. So Great. Yeah, you have to think ahead. And I and I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, your company is, I would say, probably in the forefront of thinking that way or Yeah, I absolutely think so. I, I think another example would be Quercus tomentella, which yep. is our native island oak, mm-hmm. which was only found growing out on the Catalina Islands. Oh, wow. And there's fossil records. There are fossil records that at one time existed on the mainland, but as you know, the plates moved. Somehow they didn't exist on the mainland anymore. They were only out on Catalina Island. But this is more of a sub subtropical oak. It's actually quite tolerant of wet feet, which is unlike a lot of other California natives. They want to be cool and dry in the summer because coastal California is foggy, like it was foggy here this morning, which is right. crazy, but dry. And when you start having warm days where you're irrigating, you're creating a warm, wet environment. And a lot of those native oaks will fail rather quickly because they, they would want to be cool and dry, not warm and wet. But Quercus tomentella actually was probably a subtropical oak and actually likes warm and wet. So it's an, an ideal tree to plant in a landscape that's going to have a turf or some sort of an irrigated environment. They don't seem to mind heat, but they are going to need a little bit of irrigation. So again, it's perfect. I wouldn't call it a California mitigation tree. It's not something you go plant out on a hillside and expect it to survive. It would in Catalina, where it has plenty of moisture from fog, but here on the mainland of California, it wouldn't work. But in landscape, it's ideal because That's it gets great. enough water. It's evergreen. It's a modestly sized tree. And it's one of my favorites. So with Tomantello, do you happen to, you say there's a, a healthy stand of them out on Catalina there Island? There are some. They're actually on, uh, the, the best stand is on Santa Cruz Island, what I've been told. Haven't seen them. The fun story is on that particular tree, a native, a native plants nursery here in the central coast got a hold of some of these acorns and grew some trees. And of course, this was in the 70s and 80s and nobody knew what they were and nobody was interested in them. He, he couldn't give them away, so he had to give them away. Mm-hmm. And they ended up at municipal sites. So about five miles from his nursery is a Royal Grande High School, which was built in the 70s. And right in the middle of the main quad are the three, what I call the three sisters, mm-hmm. which are three Quercus Tomentella. They're gorgeous. And, you know, they're getting, you know, high school maintenance. So, you know, they're not on it. They're not in an estate landscape. They deal with a lawnmower, you know, dinging the trunk and driving yep. around them. And they're stunning trees. And they are our source for all of our acorns. Those three trees, annually, we get close to two to 3,000 acorns from those three trees. And that's how we produce them. And yeah. I, I will tell you the fun, I'll go quick. The, the fun story is I knew the trees were there because the folks at Apple presented me with acorns that said Arroyo Grande High School. And I went, hmm. So I went looking for the trees on a Sunday when there weren't going to be any kids around. I walk all the perimeter and I, could, I couldn't find these trees. And finally, I said, I wonder if they're somewhere in the middle. They're literally in the main quad in the middle of the campus. And in my walk around, I saw, you know, join Royal Grande FFA. And I was in Future Farmers and I thought, oh, I bet there's, a, you know, an advisor that I could talk to. Spent the next few hours online trying to find the advisor for the Royal Grande FFA. She's amazing. Very long story short, she and I made a deal. 
Um, the students collect acorns. We give them a buck a seed up to a thousand. So she gets a check for a thousand dollars every year, which she uses for her, her program. She reglazed her greenhouses and has done vegetable platters and teaching kids about horror. I get my thousand acorns. I taught her how to gather them, how to gather them, how to store them. And when she had a thousand, give me a call, come and pick them up. And then the day I go pick them up, I get to teach her classes that day. Oh, that's so fabulous. I bring trees with me, grown in pioneer pots, and show the students how we do that, you know, hoping to find my replacement someday. Like one of these one of these one of these ag kids is gonna want to uh, go into horticulture someday. I hope. I have no doubt. Yeah. So that's how we have that tree in production. Before we kind of wrap things up, this has been one of those conversations. I can't believe how quickly the hour has flown by, but I like that the uh, Devil Mountain website has a link, a PDF actually, of uh, the, the future trees for California. Thank you. Yeah, I know it's come up with a previous California guest. That some of the bigger universities are pretty engaged with that uh, vetting process, right? Of putting Absolutely. the comprehensive lists together. Can you comment on that and maybe even give us your wisdom, David, on the whole native versus exotic controversy that will always be with us? Yeah, that is a that is a giant, giant can of worms that I'm always careful to tread on. I think we've all learned to be careful. <laughs> yeah, very, very. We already careful. talked about the eucalyptus, so. Right. Right. Well, my, again, no, it's fine. And here's my thing. I want to be able to sit under a shade tree of some kind. If you look at pictures of the San Fernando Valley before it was settled and developed, yeah. it was grassland. There weren't trees there. So it is a giant bowl of trees now. It is a very green environment and meets many guidelines for tree canopy cover for a city, which is for Los Angeles, I think is amazing. And um, I totally understand the idea of managing and continuing to grow as many natives as possible. But if you're dealing with a climate that's changing and things are migrating, something that worked great last year or 20 years ago might not work now in that same environment. And again, I go back to, I want a shade tree to sit under. So let's figure out what works. Try not to introduce invasive species and you know, do our best not to introduce native species. Have a robust program for, for preserving what we have. And, and to your words, moving it north as things get warmer and drier south, we can move them north. So don't lose those species. Well, I certainly don't want to lose any of them because you never know what chemistry might be in that, that loss. It might be the, the drug that solves cancer. You don't know. So I have a real passion not to lose any species, but I also have a real passion to sit in, in the shade of a, of a large tree. So this, this question comes up often in California. We have so many native plants. I met a, a nice young woman that moved to California from the Midwest. And she said, one county in California has more species than the whole state of Ohio. And you know, she said, it's, it's daunting what grows here so I have a passion for maintaining that, being a native Californian, and I'm probably fourth generation native Californian now. So I, I see reasons to say, you know, to maintain what was here. I, I think that's really a, a good way of putting it. And I, I remember being out in L.A. and someone had said we were on a tour, a plant tour, and they said that in L.A. there's more 
variation of species than pretty much any place else in the United States in that one area. And it's mind-boggling to think about that and to know that, you know, your, your communities are very diverse, but you also go through a lot of adversities when it comes to the Santa Ana winds and the now you just had a hurricane coming up and you, you think <laughs> about how there. these <laughs> a hurricane that how all all that affects the plant communities and and the people too. Sure. And you know, you never know what mother nature is going to bring. I think that uh, looking around after an event, a storm event, after a big drought event, after a fire, look for what's thriving. Let's see what's actually working and make sure we my, I've been working with Dr. Ritter from Cal Poly, and he said, you know, when you drive around California and you see that large empty lot with a few trees growing on it, and yet it's a square, the trees are a square. He said, you know, at some time there was a house there. And 40, 50 years ago, the house either burned down or was torn down. Yet there's a few trees that have managed to live their whole life without any human input. And his question to me and, and my industry in California was, why aren't we growing those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this idea of getting back to things that may have been in our industry that thrived and been for fashion reasons, they've fallen out of favor. But let's let's try to focus on things we know that once they're in the ground, they can live in California with little or no irrigation, human intervention, and thrive and actually build our canopy cover. Right. Speaking uh, about trees and the shade tree that you want to sit under, what is one of your favorite trees? Well, I would have to say I there's a list of them. I'm sure there but, is. Um, you Today. can give us your top 100. So, Today. Okay, no, no, no. Yeah, right now in five <laughs> minutes. I grew up under Coast Redwoods and Coast Live Oaks in Sonoma County, so north of San Francisco. So Redwood was my was my tree for years. But as I've, as I've gotten older and started playing with other trees from other parts of the Southwest, I have quickly have fell in love with silver, silver leaf oak, which is Quercus hypoleucoides, which comes from, comes from the Sky Islands of Arizona. So it's monsoonal, which again, we talked a little bit about earlier. This is a tree yeah. that doesn't, doesn't mind warm and wet, which is an ideal tree for California, especially in the built environment where it's warmer and we need to irrigate. So it doesn't struggle with root rot issues for warm and wet. So Quercus hypoleucoides or silver leaf oak is one of my favorite. And uh, I've been very fortunate to get several thousand into production. We were just uh, driving around looking at them in the last couple of days. And the arborist from the Apple campus was with me and he stopped and he goes, you got that idea from me. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, I don't know that I've ever seen 600 of them in production in two-foot boxes. And I said, yeah. I, I, I said, if anybody asks, I give you credit. So <laughs> Quercus hypoleucoides, I would have to say, I've got to make sure Quercus rugosa is on that list, which is the Mexican netleaf oak. Great for co- coastal California. It will grow from all around the Bay Area. It wants to be a little cooler in the summer. So it's beautiful in Marin County, large oak with uh, large leaves. The new growth is uh, crimson. So it has this beautiful crimson growth. It has the same gestalt as a magnolia grandiflora. So from a distance, you, you could 
if it, if it had white flowers, it could be a magnolia grandiflora. It has that same shape and feel about it. Um, again, once once established in coastal California, no supplemental irrigation is needed. They'll burn just fine on their own. And that real thick leaf, that real super thick, thick leaf, dark super. dark green foliage, and um, it's evergreen. And mm-hmm. seems that when people come to California, they want all their trees to be evergreen. Well, it is California, right? Especially Southern California, selling uh, deciduous trees in Southern California is, <laughs> is you know pushing a boulder uphill. Yeah. They right. want green. And then my my newest favorite, my newest one that I just added to the list a couple of years ago is uh, working with Dr. Ritter is uh, Eucalyptus spathulata. And it's uh, the Swamp Mali, M-A-L-E-E, I believe. Could be two L's, I'm not sure. But um, it grows in brackish water in Australia. So this is something that will tolerate hot it will tolerate salty water. So reclaimed water in California is always an issue. It's kind of one of the reasons why redwoods fell off my favorite list because with reclaimed water, they never look as good as... Mm. Uh, but this tree is tolerant of runoff from parking lots. It will actually, in the little four by four cutouts in a parking lot, make shade. And uh, it doesn't... Most people wouldn't recognize it as a eucalyptus. The leaves are, are thread-like. They're very, very, very narrow. And it casts the most beautiful light shade. So it's not this heavy, dense shade. It actually is almost uh, diaphanous. You can feel light coming through it. And uh, tough as can be. So that's one of those are my top three for, for today. Fantastic. Three top ones that we have not had yet. <laughs> Good. Which Good. is well, great. California is kind of a unique environment. Out of our 142 episodes, no one has mentioned any of those. Yeah. Well, I can assure you. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. Right now you need to look them up. Exactly. Silver oak, the reason it's called silver oak is the, uh, the pubescence on the lower surface of the leaf is actually silver white. And uh, the first one I saw was in Portland, Oregon. So it's a very... You know, it's very tolerant of a lot of climates. And the it was probably 30 to 40 feet tall by 20 feet wide. And I and uh, they had uplit it, and it was an evening, and it was moonlit. So you had this moonlight with this uplight and a breeze, and you see these silver leaves flood. It was just, it was almost a magical moment. And I went, ooh, I need to figure out how to grow more of those. So it's that's why it's near the top of my list. We have one here, the silver maple. When it when it flutters, ah, in the, yes. when it flutters in the in the wind, it's called silver maple because the backs are silvery and it looks very magical, like something out of a Walt Disney movie. Acer Acer saccharinum. Correct? Acer saccharinum. Yes, it is. That's Ooh. absolutely correct. Yep. 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 They were in favor in California in the seventies and the sixties. There was a great many of them on the campus at Fresno State. In, in the middle of our Central Valley, which is about as hot and as miserable as you can get, but they were always planted in turf. So they did, they were star performers in turf until they get older and they start falling apart. Right. But, yeah, they, uh, they're they certainly do. fast growers. Yeah. They'd like to add their, their, organic, their organic material to the, the landscape. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure having you on our podcast and, 
talking about trees and propagation, which I love propagation. I think that that it's just way under talked about and it should be talked about more. And we, we should be having all children learn at the elementary school level how to collect seed. It's such an important yeah. collect seed and skill. and without without a seed bank and without propagules, I can't make more. So right. uh, we've yeah. actually we've been learning that. Yeah, I'm going to add one more thing real quick. We've actually yeah. put in seed orchards in our nursery in Fillmore, uh, down in Ventura County. So instead of having to traipse out to some site, I said let's take our best viejas engelmanias and plant a grove with them in the nursery that in five, six years from now, 10 years from now, I don't have to go out to San Diego. I can actually collect the acorns right here in the nursery. I was going to ask you about that because some nurseries do have trees that they use as their stock. Mother stock, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We have that for our shrub production because we have a big field of, of mother plants where we take all of our cuttings from. Well, this has been a real treat. It's been a delight and we wish you the best continued success growing and hope you find more species that create a a real buzz out there in California. Thank you. Well, one of my passions is finding something better. We can always improve. So we're always looking for the next good tree that fits our growing environment. Very cool, David. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Thank you both. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.